Hello guys and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. Today we're joined by Nir Anon. Nir earned his PhD degree in genetics, epigenetic aging and exercise and he is leading the multicentral gene SMART standing for skeletal muscle adaptation response to training. Nir is a group leader in genetics, epigenetics and exercise group at the Institute of Health and Sports in Victoria, Australia. Nir is also an honorary research fellow at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and an associate editor in BMC Genomics and European Journal of Sports Science. In 2020, he was the recipient of the Victorian Young Tall Poppy Science Award. Additionally, he has published more than 85 peer-reviewed scientific manuscripts and seven chapters and has more than 40 delivered keynote invited presentations in international conferences. So with all of that, uh, Nir, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you and thanks for having me. <laughs> Beautiful. So mm -hmm. Nir, as we begin, uh, did you want to just share your story? How did you end up um, actually, you know, uh, being interested in epigenetics um, and what led you to where you are today? Okay, thank you. So, yes, so I, uh, I arrived to Australia uh, about 10, 11 years ago, 2011. Uh, I came from Israel. I did my PhD in, uh, in Israel, but in uh, collaboration with the University of Porto in Portugal. And my PhD was uh, mainly based or looked at uh, athletic performance and genetics. So we looked at the elite athletes and their, I guess, their genome, their genome sequence, and to see if they are different or similar to the general population. It was sort of uh, early days back then. We had uh, made very big progress in the last 10 years in terms of technology and in terms of a number of athletes that we can sample because back then we had very few athletes that we can really sample. Uh, I've then uh, arrived to Australia after my PhD. So I started a postdoc at Victoria University. Uh, and after a year, I sort of got a lectureship position, but at the same time, I got a, I got a fellowship from the Australian Research Council, the DECRA Fellowship. And I started my own group and my own group is uh, sort of uh, very focused on at the moment, epigenetics, genetics, exercise, and the aging processes. So I guess how does exercise can mitigate or slow down the aging process uh, in the molecular level or in the epigenetic level. And this is something that's really interests interest, uh, our group in the last five years. So the way it began is, uh, I guess, my, my senior postdoc, Sarah Voisin, she's a uh, uh, she came. She came to work with me. She did her PhD uh, in uh, in uh, uh, Sweden and in France. And she came to work with me, and she started to be very interested in this uh, this topic. And it started to emerge about four to five years ago, when uh, uh, someone by, goes by the name Professor Steve Hovart from uh, UCLA. He invented. Uh, what we refer as today epigenetic clocks. So samples of DNA methylation or I guess markers on the human genome to make it simplify, markers on the human genome that can actually tell you your age. <laughs> so it started to be really interesting for us and we, we started to look at, okay, if it tells you your age, that is, does your, can you predict your age in all the tissues? And if you can do that, can you change your, I guess, epigenetics or molecular profile uh, towards a healthy one if you do exercise? Uh, so this is, this is mainly what, what is really fascinating for us at the moment. That is very, very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. And I'm very excited to learn more. So I think um, if you're happy, we're going to break this down into three sections uh, for all those listening. Is we start with what is genetics, learn a little bit more about how that impacts our genes. Then we can uh, learn a bit more about how that influences exercise. And then, as you just said, how exercise um, it influences how you age. So um, with all that said, uh, what is genetics near? So genetics is our code. We all have 
sort of a code in our body, in every cell of our body. And the code is similar in all the cells. And it's 99.9% .9 similar between all the individuals. It's really interesting. Uh, however, 0.1% is different and that's what makes us different. So for instance, if you have blue eyes or, or brown eyes or any other visible trait that you have that is different, tall, short, this is uh, mainly your, a, a lot of them is part of this 0.1% that is different between individuals. Uh, this code is not changed through years unless in a very severe cases. Uh, it's, it's just constant and we can sample that today very easily, but by very uh, simple blood test. When we started to look at genetics, we could have looked at uh, only certain parts of the human genome, uh, small parts, but today we can actually sequence the, almost the entire human genome. And the entire human genome is based or is, yeah, is based with, with what we call letters or blocks. And we have almost 3 billion blocks or letters across our human genome. And again, this, this can be, you know, varied between population and between individuals within the population. Uh, so this is what we're looking at, the variation that what, what is different between, for instance, athletes and me and you. What is different between people that have predisposition to disease uh, to me and you. The problem is, or to someone else who doesn't have predisposition to disease. The problem is that it's very complex and it's not one gene that is controlling uh, a, a trait or phenotype, it's multiple genes. So we need a lot of uh, bioinformatics or statistical uh, tools to understand how those genes together contribute to the trait. For instance, if you're running marathon, uh, two hours and three minutes or four minutes. We both can agree that if we train, if we both train, we probably won't reach this uh, uh, threshold ever. Uh, however, there are some people that are doing that. So why is it happening? And it's probably many, many genes that are contributing to that. Mm, interesting. And so um, obviously when uh, a male and a female get together, and reproduce uh that's where you get this mashup of genes that then creates exactly. this genetic code exactly so you're getting 50 percent in a 50 percent of your genes from your mom and 50 percent for your from your uh, biological father uh and it's it's completely randomized uh during the reproduction uh, uh, period and this is how it happens so i guess you need to sort of you know Choose carefully your mom and dad. Yes. And so when, um, when that actually uh, does happen, how much of your parents' DNA, um, because I, I did read that uh, there's some, uh, that, that memory or what your parents had experienced during their life, and this might fall into epigenetics, actually influences what they pass down to you. So let's say, for instance, if your grandmother ate really badly her whole life, um, and yep. didn't exercise, that could actually influence her offspring, which would then influence you. Exactly. There's a lot of evidence for that. And this is called epigenetics or how the environment, the environmental factors are influencing your genome. So as I said before, your genome is constant. Mm. The, the letters are not changing or the sequence is not changing. However, if you apply environmental stimuli, so for instance, if you're smoking or on the other side, if you're doing exercise, it can change the way your genes are being expressed. And it can be for multiple generations as well. There is evidence to show that it can be for multiple generations as well. Wow, that's, that's so fascinating. Even if your parents were bad for, your, for their body, uh, it does mean that you have a little bit more... Uh, uh, less leverage than others, but you still have a lot of leverage uh, if you do exercise and if you do restrictive uh, diet or live in a healthy life, uh, you're probably going to change the expression of some of those key genes that are responsible for better metabolism or better muscle mass 
or better, better muscle contraction, uh, even not only in the muscle, but also uh, in, in multiple tissues across the body. Wow. So you can actually make this shift within one lifetime? Probably, yes. Probably, yes. Yeah. And how, how long would you say it would take in order for somebody, let's say, that, and I'm sure each person's different, so obviously a rough um, guesstimate. If somebody's living a very unhealthy lifestyle and their parents were living a very unhealthy lifestyle, but they've now decided I want to change my life. And for, you know, an X amount of time, how long do you think it would take for their body to actually start receiving I guess, a... Yeah, I guess that's the million dollar question. How mm. long do you need to exercise and how, how long can you neglect yourself before, before you wake up? So my, my answer to that is, you know, whenever you start is great. Doesn't matter what you've done before. Yes, there will be uh, leftovers from the past. For instance, if you start smoking, uh, sorry, if you stop smoking after a long life uh, being, being a smoker, that's reducing your risk, but it doesn't mean that it's eliminating your risk uh, at all because there are some damage that already been done in the cell uh, level, in the cellular level, for instance, in smoking, it's a good you know, good, uh, good example, the, lung, the lungs has been already, some of the lungs has been already affected. Uh, you can improve other functions and you can probably live better and longer, but it doesn't mean that those signatures has disappeared. Mm. And from data that we see in our lab, for instance, in healthy individuals, uh, not necessarily in you know unhealthy people, but healthy individuals. You can see that after even after twelve weeks of you know uh, facilitated exercise, you can see really good improve in the molecular level, in the physiological level, and you can also see it even in even less, even even four or five weeks of high intensity exercise uh, can shift a lot of the changes in your epigenetic, for instance, or molecular signature to a healthier profile. Wow, that is that is truly amazing. So does that enable, um, is that going into allowing your cells to divide a lot better um, and a lot healthier? Because um, how would that impact your health exactly? Or is it just making sure that all your organs are working a lot better and your body's just overall functioning at a more optimum capacity? Yeah, so, yeah, so the later. So I guess it's, yeah. The, the body is uh, functioning in a, in a much better capacity. Uh, you're more healthy in multiple organs. It means that not only your muscle, but also your brain and your blood and your liver and some other organs that are important for, uh, for you to live are healthier, mm. which means that you can live longer, but more importantly, your health span your the numbers the number of years that you will spend in good health will be better because the main problem that we have now in us in all over the world but in particular in australia we are very focused on lifespan on elongating life of people the problem is that those people uh in the last 15 to 20 percent of their life which is uh around you know 70s 70 plus, they're starting to be very ill and they have a lot of uh, chronic diseases. And this is what we want to change. We want to change those lives to make those, you know, la last, last years of your life healthier rather than just elongate your life and you live until you are 120, but you'll be, you know, sick for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so what, um, uh, so if, I mean, firstly, I just want to um, backtrack a little bit uh, for those who, who are listening and um, want to just see how profound this whole epigenetic shift is through generations. Um, so I read about a study and I would love to hear more studies that you have found uh, just to solidify in people's minds how, once again, how profound this is, uh, where they took um, mice and I think they had seen one that was like um, overweight, they'd taken a, a parents that were fat overweight and um their fur was yellow very unhealthy yeah. and they got them to start eating really healthy um and then once they had reproduced their offspring 
were healthy brown proper mice so showing the shift um within during their lifespan had altered the 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 genetic expression of their babies is there any other experiments like that um which you would like to um, elaborate on just to give people an idea of 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 this in real time yeah so i guess there are more that much more ex uh, experiment that has been done in the last i would say 10 years since this field is uh I guess, uh, thriving uh, and more understood. So these this studies that you just um, just talked about uh, on the Aguti mouse, it's studies that has been done quite a long time ago. And they are one of the first studies that show that epigenetics or the environmental factor that you on your offsprings are really important and can actually change, not your genetic code, but the expression of your genes and your epigenetic profile, which means that you'll be, you'll be, you'll probably be more healthy throughout your life, although your offspring, uh, sorry, your parents were, you know, not, or not behaving well during their life in terms of a uh, uh, healthy lifestyle. There are many, many others, other uh, experiments today uh, in terms of uh, in animals, but also in humans. So in our study, for instance, we've got a big human study called the Gene Smart, and we are training people, and we are collecting muscle samples from more than 140 participants before and after exercise. And we also are collaborating with other colleagues from around the world. So we reached around close to 1,000 muscle samples, which is a big undertaking by uh, one, of my, one, of, one of my group members. And what we see is that exercise is shifting significantly uh, the epigenome or the epigenetic markers across the human genome towards a healthier profile. So there is a very big, um, I guess, uh, negative correlation between how you age and when you do exercise, which is good for us. Very, very. And so you were mentioning earlier that um, the type of exercise uh, would vary, but you mentioned doing high impact or not high impact, um, high intensity. High intensity. Yeah. So do you find that that is the most efficient form of shifting your genetic um, uh, gene expression to a much healthier form or does it, it doesn't really matter as long as you're doing any sort of exercise? What, what does that well, look like? It's really interesting because I can't say that for certainty. I know that high-density exercise today is, has gained a big uh, interest in the last, I guess, decade or even less than a decade. Uh, it's, it's a good strategy to, to increase your, uh, your exercise capacity in a shorter bout, but more intense. And I think the intensity starts, there's a big argument in the exercise world always between the intensity and the duration of the exercise. Mm -hmm. Some people are thinking, okay, the duration of exercise is more important. Some pe people like me thinking that the intensity of exercise, uh, in particular in healthy uh, individuals, but also in obese individuals and people with type 2 diabetes, uh, the intensity is really important because it uh, manifesting or changing a lot of uh, things in your cells uh, more pronouncedly than long-term exercise in, in, cert in certain cases. It doesn't mean that if you don't do high-intensity exercise, it's not good, vice versa, or the other way around. Uh, continuous exercise is also important. It's just a matter of doing the same exercise for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that is really interesting and we shouldn't neglect is muscle mass. All these aerobic exercises are really important, but they are not significantly increasing your muscle mass and your muscle strength. However, if you do strength training, keep it in older, you need it because muscle mass is really important. So I would say a combination of all these exercises uh, with maybe mental, mental health exercises such as yoga are really important. Mm. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, with your, because um, I know with uh, doing resistance training, that increases your human growth hormones. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, would human growth hormones um, 
aid in the aging process. So trying to ensure that uh, you don't age as fast. Yeah, that's one of the mechanisms. And exactly. then fasting does the same thing. Yeah, that's also one of the mechanisms with, uh, with fasting. So again, the fasting uh, thing is really interesting. And I think it's gaining a lot of popularity in the last few years. Uh, the intermittent fasting, the age 16 or whatever, 6, 18, whatever uh, hours that you are fasting, uh, there's a lot of uh, mechanisms, cellular mechanisms that are shown to be beneficial for, uh, for exercise, for, sorry, for fast, when you're fasting uh, for many hours of the day. Uh, and it's, it's, it's probably really good for your body. You need to know how to do that. But there's a lot of evidence showing that the fasting is, is working really well. Uh, I think one of the things about fasting is that when you're fasting for a long time, you're just getting, getting your body used to eating less, which is another me important mechanism for a longer time. Uh, you need to know how to do that. And you, uh, of course, need to you know, advise, get advice from your nutritionist and your doctor. But this is certainly gaining a lot of popularity. Mm. So it's probably um, ensuring that you um, eat regular meals initially so your metabolism is firing. And then from that point onwards, um, potentially doing, you know, two to three days of intermittent fasting or whatever it may be, but then um, uh, coupling that with then eating properly to re-stabilize re it and reboost it up. So it, it knows what its equilibrium is and then you taking it out of that for a little while, which then allows you to go into rest and digest and then re um, reintroducing your proper meals again is that uh yeah maybe look i'm not i'm not an expert in uh, nutrition to be honest so yeah. i don't want to i don't want to say things that i'm not sure of mm. but i can tell you from so i'm doing fasting diet for instance i'm i'm fasting 16 hours of, of the day and eating only eight in regular hours i think it's it did so from personal experience it did really good for me in terms of maintaining my uh my weight uh, my body weight for for few years, and I'm doing that for the last four or five years. So it's sort of like a different lifestyle, rather than just doing something that is acute for mm. three months or two months, and then coming back to your uh, regular life. I'm just this is just I think something that you can get your body used to uh, for a long time, and it's there's a lot of good evidence to show that it's that it's good for you. And how do you find it cognitively? Um, do you find that your cognitive ability is, um, is fine or do you find sometimes you get a bit sluggish? And, and if so, how do you counter uh, that? Look, I, personally, I don't have any problem with that. Personally, I don't, I don't feel any decline in my cognitive uh, or my cognition. Uh, again, I'm not an expert in that, so I don't want to say if your cognitive is declining or not. I don't think it is. Uh, I think... Uh, yeah, so I don't like. I can tell. I can tell you about exercise that you're definitely uh, uh, targeting some parts of your brain and and make them make them better for you, I guess. Or it's it's better for like exercise is almost like a poly pill, it's mm. a pill for everything, for every organ in your body, and we can see it in the cellular level. We can see it in the physiological level in almost every organ of your body, including your brain. Uh, certainly in your muscle and your heart, but even organs like liver and kidney are functioning better if you do exercise regularly. I think there is certain mechanisms with proper nutrition uh, that are similar, but again, I don't want to be specific on that because I'm not an expert in that. Of course, no, of course. And, uh, you know, personally, I've come from um, an exercise background. Um, I, I mean, I've been training for many years and I, I couldn't imagine life without it you know it does definitely um, make you feel so much better in so many ways and so um, it's brilliant to see the evidence obviously backing that up in terms of um, different types of exercise we were talking about high intensity exercise we spoke about resistance training and then you mentioned yoga how does yoga influence your genetics wow it's uh i don't i don't think yoga is influencing your genetics. i think as i said before your genetics is constant yeah but but if you think about 
So there is some evidence that shows that, you know, uh, flexibility, higher flexibility is, uh, I guess, about, it has a genetic component. Let's start with that. Uh, we don't know exactly which particular genes. There are some evidence for that, however. Uh, and when you, when, I guess when you do yoga, there's a lot of uh, mental health things that are improving and there's a lot of relaxation. Uh, I think physiologically, your muscles are being more long and they can produce more power later on, which is important. Uh, and, and this is where I think the mechanisms around doing yoga is, is important physiologically and also molecularly. Mm. So would it um, drastically decrease because um, obviously stress hormones and cortisol are a, a serious harm to your body um, and can cause a lot of cancer, um, I'm sure increased aging and so on. Um, would Yoga would obviously decrease your cortisol levels, which should then... Um, yeah. Yeah, allow you to be. So, how does cortisol yeah. impact your um, the way your genes are expressed? Yeah, so I think yeah, so I don't have a specific answer for that because I'm not I'm not an expert in cortisol, but I can tell you that cortisol is a stress hormone, and if you reduce uh, the level of stress hormone, it's certainly good for you. And as you mentioned before, it's not. It's less predisposing you for uh, chronic diseases like heart disease um, and, and uh, diabetes, for instance, and, and other di chronic diseases. So that's probably one of the mechanisms that is important in yoga. Mm, mm. And, and so you were talking about um, exercise and, and uh, different types of injuries, heart inflammation, so on. How does genetics influence flexibility and the predisposition to injury yeah okay so there, there are some studies in the world for the last decade or 15 years looking at specific genes that are uh, I guess associated with injury uh, in particular genes that are related to our uh, tendons and and muscle and there are some suggestions showing that if you have certain genes you'll be more protective, uh, protected, I guess, uh, from injuries. It's not something that is robust enough to come to a conclusion, uh, but there are a lot of studies now coming up, in particular in animals, showing that, you know, if you have certain gene uh, variants in, in uh, for instance, in the tendon, uh, you'll be more protected and less predisposed to injuries. But again, you need a lot of samples and big human studies to show that. For instance, we showed in a couple of studies, small studies, that if you have certain genes uh, in the collagen, uh, you are more protective of, uh, of ACL injuries. But I stress again that it, this is small studies and it's preliminary results. And we can't really prove that without the mechanism but also without big sample. So one of the things in genetics and also epigenetics is that you need very large sample size mm. to prove your point uh, in humans. And it's very hard to collect a lot of samples from people that are injured across the world. So, mm. yeah, but certainly it's many genes that are responsible for that. And, uh, and we're still investigating that. It's really interesting uh, uh, line of uh, research. Mm, definitely, because I think it, it um, you'd have a, a child, you know, obviously born with a specific genetic code and then obviously specific genes that are being expressed. Would you say that, so not every child is obviously born on, on the same playing field in terms of, let's say, for instance, I want to become a famous athlete. Um, you, you, based on our discussion, correct me if I'm wrong, I would, some people would have um, specific genes that may potentially there's not enough evidence to back that up um form injuries a lot earlier but some may be able to um obviously become a lot faster which is is normal i guess but would how much leeway would there be within that that child or person's life if two kids want to become an athlete is it possible that both of them through their lifespan by eating healthy training properly could alter their gene expression in order to um outperform or uh 
That's a really good question. And what I'm always saying is that even though you have maybe different set of genes or, or other variants, uh, I think if you, you do it properly and you change your environment and you, you make sure that you're eating properly and training properly, your chances uh, to become an athlete are increasing. The question is, would you be standing on the podium in, uh, in the Olympic uh, Games? This is something that I can't, I'm not really sure because it's, it's a combination of genetics and environmental factors. But I guess how many of us are standing on the podium? Most of the athletes are just good athletes or very good athletes, but they're not, not all of them are, you know, world champions. So I guess you need to try and do that. But most of the athletes, like I would never come to a child when they are young, do a genetic test and tell them that they are, you know, predisposed to be this and predisposed to be that because we are not there yet with our science. And unfortunately, there are a lot of companies that are, you know, out there and promising that, which I'm, I'm totally against that. I think that uh, we don't have, still, we still don't have, uh, the complete knowledge of the set of genes that are predisposing athletes for better performance. Uh, we only know about one or two genes that we are almost completely certain that are important in athletic performance, but those genes are contributing very small portion of the trait. So for instance, the ACTN3 gene is a really uh, interesting gene that uh, has been discovered by uh, Professor Katrina from the Meredith uh, Children Research Institute here in Australia uh, about 25 years ago. And if you have a certain variant in this gene, uh, it's called the XX variant, or you're not expressing the gene, you're probably not gonna stand on the podium in the Olympic, uh, in the, uh, Olympic Games but it doesn't mean that you're not gonna be a great athlete. So this is something that we need to, to make sure not to choose uh, the sports for our children based on, on genetics uh, or tell them that they can't do it, they can do a certain sport. Wow, brilliant. So um, based on, on what I'm understanding, really what separates a good athlete from somebody who wins the Olympic games, a good athlete from the best athlete, is really just emphasizing the environmental factors throughout their life and their training um, is optimized because whether they have, um, you can't gauge their genetic, based on the genetic information, you can't gauge if they will be an Olympic athlete or not. That just comes down to what they do within their life cycle. That we have now, probably yes, but the genetics is important here. Uh, it's just that, you know, other than this gene, the ACTN3, and maybe another gene called the ACE, mm. uh, other than those two genes, we don't have the complete picture. And therefore, we can't really come to very robust conclusions about that. So, yeah. So I support the notion that the environmental factors are really, really important, probably for me more important than our genetics uh, to be a very good athlete. Mm. And with um, CRISPR and, uh, you know, I'm not, I should probably look, look a lot more into this way. Um, there's, I don't know if it's sci-fi or if it's actually reality now where you can alter yeah, the genetic reality. position of your baby. So if, if I fall pregnant, yeah. then I could yeah. alter my child's genetic information. Yes. That's, so all that's, the gene edit, so all the, so gene editing technologies, and this is inevitable. Uh, what's happening in the world is that the technology uh, of genetics is rapidly moving forward. So think about that. About 20 years ago, we couldn't even sequence our genes. And now we can sequence the entire genome and we can edit the genome. So obviously, um, uh, there's been a Nobel, Nobel Prize, prize uh, recipient on, 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 on the CRISPR technology recently. And this technology is want to enable us to sort diseases and to help people that have uh, rare diseases, but also common diseases and to target specific genes. Unfortunately, 
it can be misused as well. So, and this is something that we're scared of always, uh, that it can be misused if we find genes that are beneficial for athletic performance, people will try to do CRISPR on these genes. And this is something that in the future is it's quite scary, to be honest. Uh, having said that, when you do when you do genetic alteration in your body uh, via CRISPR and it's not safe and it's on genes that hasn't been targeted before, the problem when you're changing genes is that you can change a lot of the gene cascades uh, around that. And, and it's not only one gene, you can change a lot of the things that are happening uh, inside your cell that you don't know. So this is quite spooky and scary. Uh, I think that it will happen. I think that people will misuse that. I think so. But yeah, we need to keep an eye on that very closely. But the technology is just rapidly going fast. And it's very hard for organizations like uh, 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 the International Olympic Committee or, or, or other organizations, the Australian Institute of Sport and others to, to chase after these technologies. Oh. Have you um have you ever seen the movie Gattaca in 1997? It was about a man who wanted to become an astronaut, but his genetic yeah. information wasn't. And this is, I mean, so this movie was made in 1997. Okay, yeah. we're fast forwarding to 2022, where this yeah. stuff is is happening at a very rapid scale. So, would you exactly. say that 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 movie could almost predict the future reality almost, that we're going yeah. into, where you will not oh. be allowed to have a job? Unless they've been so many, so many things, unfortunately, in the past are predicting the future. Uh, even, even things like, and it's unrelated to the podcast, even things that are related to uh, uh, weather change and, and uh, stuff like that. Have you, I've actually read about those weather changing devices where you can actually alter the weather and cause catastrophic events. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not an expert in that, but I know that there's a lot of warning in the past that these things will happen, and they happened, and there's a lot of warning in the in the past that you know people will do whatever it takes to, to win the Olympics, and it's happening. It happen it's happening sometimes with with hormones, and it's happening with injections of uh, uh, forbidden materials and stuff like that. And it will happen with gene editing. They will try to do that. The question is how are we how are we making sure that we catch that on time and it's not being misused? Well, I guess we're gonna see it in the future. Yeah, because then you've also got editing their genes in order to compete. And sure, maybe maybe everybody would be editing their genes, like if you have uh, taking hormones, even though you're not really supposed to. Um, you know, there's different ways of people cheating the system. You can kind of test for that, but you can't really test for gene editing, um, you know. And mm. then on top of that, you've got um, artificial intelligence, which is coming in um, that would be able to take these ideas that we have, um, you know, been working on on a base level and, and expand it, you know, beyond comprehension because now you have this machine that can calculate and download every piece of information that's ever existed in order to um, increase our ideas. So the future is a very, very interesting space. It, it is, but at the same time, if you look 30 years ago, for instance, you know, our genome hasn't changed significantly from 30 years ago. What changed is the technology. And yeah, that, I guess the technology, the technology changed. Uh, better runners for the athletes, better outfit, better understanding of training regimes that makes them more competitive, uh, more uh, strong or stronger. Uh, and, and I guess that the flip side of that is the misuse of technology that we are, you know, we are so happy that we have now such a good technology to enable our athletes, but even the general population to do more exercise, and to be stronger and faster and to run for, uh, you know, better marathon, even for the general population. However, you know, some of this technology can also be misused. So the question is, what, what is the balance? And I, I don't really have, I don't really have the, 
I guess. The answer. Yeah. <laughs> the what, answer for that, yeah. The, the thing I was going to say earlier, um, cloning. So, uh, the, you know, they did experiments years and years ago, uh, you know, cloning a sheep. And then it kind of went, okay, we should no longer go any further. But different countries, like you were saying how, um, you know, there's always a bad way to use these sort of things. Some countries will say, no, we're banning this, these, this research. We are no longer going any more forward because this is obviously messing with nature and it's, it's going a bit too far. But other countries wouldn't have those laws or wouldn't have that cultural um, understanding or agreement to maybe not go further down. So some countries you could experiment and do whatever you wanted. You know, there's no human rights abuse, nothing. You just, just go for gold. Um, and so... I mean, I, I'm. I, do you know of any of the advancements even in, in cloning that we have? I mean, if you can it's alter a, your genomes, I mean, you can clone people. It's a, it's a, it's a scary world, isn't it? That we are marching towards. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so going, going slightly good, back. It's good in terms of the technology. The technology is really, like, it's, it's very exciting, the technology mm. we have in exercise and genetic now. And it's in a good way, it's, it's helping to solve a lot of the issues around rare diseases. So for instance, there, is, there are you know, scientists in Australia, very good scientists in Australia, like Daniel MacArthur, for instance, from the Garvin Institute. And he's looking at rare genetic uh, variation, rare genetic diseases. And these exact technologies are helping him and his group and other groups in Australia to you know, identify people that have rare diseases that didn't know why they have rare diseases. And now they know that it's because of their genes. And, and that's the first step uh, towards understanding and then curing those diseases. But at the same time on the you know, flip side of the coin, the misuse that they can alter your genes to, you know, to run better, to go for gold, uh, I'm not aware of any official experiment on that, but I would not be surprised if there are things that are happening behind the scenes that the modern world doesn't know about. Uh, probably. Well, like, I mean, like the weather technology that we're kind of all just opening our eyes to now. But uh, going back to uh, what we we're talking about earlier, with uh, prolonging human life, this is a, a topic that I'm actually very fascinated in. Um, where, so you're talking about how you can alter your genomes, potentially you can use exercise, you can use intermittent fasting. There's a few companies that I've researched, one in particular, um, which their mission statement is saying we will prolong life um, by, I think their goal was like 20, uh, 2030. Um, and so, you know, you'd think that all these billionaires across the world, they... Yeah. Um, have a massive money is no longer an object power exactly. sure, power is always good um, and the more power you get I'm sure the better for them um, but the, the one issue that they have is time time is something that they have a, a limited amount of so if they could even give half of their money let's you know they would they would probably give a, a lot more than half of their money to prolong their life so I can imagine that this is a trillion dollar industry to, to increase life. And from my understanding, if you had to prolong life, uh, let's say you had to double your lifespan by 2030, then people who would usually live, let's say to 100, now live till 200. With the advances of technology and artificial intelligence, could we not then prolong life forever? Because do you think that it is possible to firstly double our lifespan by 2030? And secondly, do you think it's possible from that point onwards with the knowledge that we would probably have looking at how fast technologies advanced within the past 20 years and how far we've come, if you had to take that and, you know, place it, uh, continue our trajectory of technolog technological advancements, would we be able to live forever? Would this be the generation that mm -hmm. some people alive mm -hmm. today may never die? Or is that yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that we're all going to die. Uh, certainly not by 2030. Uh, it's a very big stretch. I think around those this hype of uh, aging and uh, longevity, there is very, very, very good scientists around that um, in the US and people that I'm working with, like Steve Hovart at USA and Morgan Levine and Wolf Reich and David Sinclair. 
these are really top people uh, in the aging uh, and molecular research that are working and trying to untangle the problem. At the same time, we have a lot of companies that are over-promising uh, longevity, uh, certainly by not not going to happen by 2030 that we are going to uh, double our life. I'm skeptical that it's going to happen. Uh, so I think exactly like the athletic and genetics, it's the same thing. There are some serious people that are working on the problem. At the same time, there are people that are trying to, on the back of that, with very poor science. Mm -hmm. The science around longevity and uh, Epigenetics, for instance, or DNA methylation as a molecule that is modifying aging is very strong. In fact, we can we have today epigenetic clocks that can that can actually tell you your chronological age. And there's a lot of work from our group and others looking at those clocks and other epigenetic markers uh, and how we can modify them with exercise and with 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 nutrition but science takes a lot of time. So I think we are on the way and there's a lot of money around that. A lot of billionaires around the world are pouring money on that. It's not gonna to be tomorrow because science, you, you're usually getting you know, prizes, uh, big prizes on stuff that you invented 20, 25 years ago because science is a very slow process and you need to be sure that your science is robust and replicable and not just the hype. Mm. So by 2030, to double their life uh, uh, expectancy, I don't, don't, I don't think, think so. it's going to happen. So yeah. Is this because it's also, because there's one thing to say that you, your telomeres, so um, the aging, essentially, when, when you're, each time your cells divide, your telomeres get shorter and shorter. And so if you're able to, which fasting and exercise, like you just said, um, and eating well allows your telomeres to not shorten as much. And so your cells dividing a lot more accurately um, rather than having a slight defect. Is that only one facet of aging? So aging is actually a lot more complicated and a lot more of a multifaceted approach. Hence why it's so complicated exactly. to fix. Exactly. Like everything, like almost everything in your body, uh, except from rare diseases that are being caused by one gene, most of the traits in your body are complex. And when you're talking about complex trait, it means that a lot of genes and many organs and tissues in your body are involved in that. And because of that, it makes things very, very complicated. So telomere is a really good, uh, I guess, uh, example of aging. So Elizabeth, Professor Elizabeth Blackburn, who received uh, the Nobel Prize on discovering the, the function of the telomere, uh, I think. 20 years ago or something like that, or even less. I don't remember exactly which year, I'm sorry. Uh, but this, this is a good example of, you know, a pioneering breakthrough that has been worked on for many years and still is being working on and being targeted uh, as a potential mechanism of aging. The other thing again is DNA methylation, the, the, the mole molecules that we are working on and Steve Hovart is working on and others are working on. These are things that maybe in 10 or 15 years we'll discover that are really important in aging. We know that now, but we need to prove that and we need to make sure that our science is, you know, replicable for many tissues for many years and we, we can come up with, with a strong answer before we create in a hype. Mm. Yeah, because I can even see um, from a, you know, Elon Musk wanting to ensure that we become a multiplanetarial species. In order for us to um, travel to other areas of, of um, the galaxy or solar system, we have to, um, in the universe, <laughs> we'd have to, um, A, travel really fast, but B, either freeze ourselves or elongate our lifespan because it would be such a long journey. So you can really see the importance of this, not only for um, incredibly wealthy people to want to live forever, but also for people to spread to other areas of um, the solar system and expand the human race. I mean, there's a lot of uh, ethical questions here, aren't they? Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, I'm not. I'm not really. I'm not really sure that I'm in favor of uh, living uh, forever. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't think it's going to happen very soon, mm. for sure. But I, I am sure that we are elongating our life span. Uh, so this is clear that we are living more. 
significantly more. And then the question is, okay, we are living more, that's, that's great, that's good. But do we want to live in bad health mm. more, more? And that's an ethical question. Do we want to spend our last 20 years or 15 years with dementia, mm. or with, with Alzheimer? That's, that's very, that's ethical questions that I, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm, I guess, best place to answer them. But my opinion is that, you know, if you're not healthy, what's, what's the point? Oh, 100%. And with Alzheimer's um, and dementia, because that's obviously your neuro, um, your neuroreceptors are not receiving as much information or not getting, a, they're not as strong. So those uh, neural connections are much weaker and then eventually break down. That wouldn't necessarily be a genetic um, influence, would that? Or is everything genes? I think it's not everything genes. I think every, most, most of the things are combination of genes and environment. Yeah. And I think, again, I'm not an expert in dementia, but I think, I think there is a genetic component in dementia. Uh, there is a gen- genetic component in, in aging as well, but not as much, I think. I think the environmental factors and how we treat ourselves, how we live, where we live, is, is probably something that is much more important for us moving mm. forward. Because mm, I think that's where um, Neuralink, Elon Musk Neuralink comes in is um, theoretically, it's supposed to just release electronic signals um, or stimulus to your brain in order to um, allow those neural pathways to be strengthened. So it's almost from like a electro- electronic or electricity standpoint rather than um, a genetic alteration as such, which is interesting. So maybe if you could keep your body fit and healthy through exercising, um, eating well, fasting and so on, but then using a electronic stimulus in order to keep your, your brain mentally stable. And so with the two of those hand in hand, you could potentially live a lot longer and a lot healthier and cognitively aware. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, what an, an, a thoroughly, thoroughly interesting conversation. Um, and just I've got two two last questions. Um, one, how old would you say, based on your research now, it should allow people to live till about 120, 130? Would you say that that's a safe bet? Or what, what based on your research now, what age do you think that you could elongate somebody's life to and allow them to be uh, fit, happy, healthy people? I have, I have no idea. <laughs> that's the honest truth. The honest truth is that I have no idea. Uh, the only thing that I can say is that we are working very hard not to increase the life of people, but to increase the health of people throughout this life. So it, sometimes it goes hand by hand uh, and you increase the life, but you also increase the health mm-hmm. uh, throughout the life. But it's probably not going to be tomorrow. There are some drugs that are being worked on uh, in other companies and, and other, uh, you know, longevity drugs that are, show some promise, but we need to wait for very robust results, which you just, one of the things with science, and we showed that, not, not we, but, you know, scientists have shown that throughout the COVID, that you have to be patient. Mm. And if you look at COVID, for instance, as a good example of, you know, all the best scientists in the world are working and the companies are working on a very difficult problem and solving that very quickly because it was urgent. Uh, but would, would we be able to solve the longevity problem in such a you know, short time? I, I'm skeptical. Mm-hmm. I think it's moving to the right direction, but I don't think we're going to solve it in the next two or three years. Mm. And in terms of politically, so you've also got... Um, you know, let's say you can crack aging and, and double or even let's say add a good 50 years onto somebody's life because of um, the population increase that we're experiencing and the earth's um, inability to uh, sustain our current level of um, lifestyle. Um, do you think that there would be some sort of political intervention where only some people would be able to utilize that life extension? Or do you think that this um, would be everybody, as soon as you have that information, you publish it, and then it becomes a well-known practice thing that everybody can now facilitate? 
Yeah, so that's that's a really concerning question for me. Uh, would the entire population have an access for these longevity, I guess, drugs? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think first and foremost, I think that, you know, people that can afford themselves and more, I get rich or rich the people will have access for those drugs if they would be developed. And this is something that is very concerning because it's, again, showing or, I guess, uh, getting, getting us in, in a way that, uh, you know, the rich people are, have access for a lot of stuff and the poor people uh, are not. And it's, it's a major problem for me, major ethical problem for me. Mm. Uh, would it be, would we be able to, you know, deliver that to the entire population? I guess it's, it's a matter of governments and a matter of countries to, to embark on that and to be able to deliver that exactly like they, some of the, those countries are delivering uh, free drugs for, uh, for heart disease and for, for, for diabetes and other chronic diseases. Mm. So that's, that's a really good question. And I hope so. I hope so. I hope that everyone, if someone has, you know, there'll be an opportunity for everyone to have uh, access for this science and for these drugs. I can mm. tell you from science point of view, from scientific point of view, we are making sure, and most of the good scientists in the world are making sure that their science will be openly uh, open for everyone and freely available for everyone. And there are platforms for that today that we can do that. And, and we are doing our best to make, because scientists are working for the, for the public. Scientists are developing drugs, developing interventions, and developing the science for the public, not for themselves. Sometimes we forget about that, or we forget that, but you know, most of the science, scientists, the good scientists understand that. And we're also getting money or funded by the governments and by government, governmental bodies to, to solve problems for humanity and for the general population. We are not solving the problems. We are not doing the research only for ourselves. Mm. We're doing it for the, for the best of the public. And mm. therefore, my very strong view is that everything that we are publishing, everything that we are achieving belongs to the public. But no, I, I hear what you're saying, because on one end, um, you know, you have all of these scientists like yourself who are doing brilliant work in order to advance um, our capabilities. And then you have um, politicians or um, people who would like to push a certain agenda. And so they will either hush certain research and or um, control certain research or alternatively open it up to everybody so it depends on who's receiving this information and what they decide to do with it yeah exactly and again i want to stress that the important thing for us as scientists is to make all our research freely available for the public that yeah. everyone can can have access for that everyone can understand we are working for the public we are not working for ourselves. We are working for a university that is getting funding or research institute that are getting funding from uh, the government to solve problems for the humanity. And this is this, you know, all the research belongs to, to the people. Mm. I think that's brilliant. I think that is really, really brilliant. And the more open sourced information we have, which the internet has been phenomenal in cultivating, um, the more freedom of information is, is spread and the more people are aware of what's going on um, and how best they can access that and, and, and then obviously deal with life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, so thank you so much for your time. And uh, before you go, I just wanted to um, ask you one final question. If you um, had one message that you would like to spread to the world, what, what message would that be? Uh, my main message as a scientist is that science is a slow process. It has to be a robust process. And there's a lot of hype during the way, but you need to let scientists do their job properly uh, for, long, for a long period of time to make sure that the results of this science will be something that the, 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 the public can, can utilize later on. And the other message is that I think, as I said before, is that our science, the science that we do, the science that my colleagues, uh, uh, you know, some top scientists in the world are doing, must be open all the time and freely available for the public. 
and well conveyed to the public in order for the public or the people to understand what we do and why we do that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Very, very brilliant. And um, no, good luck with your research. Uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly looking forward to, to reading more and, and seeing how this field um, increases over the years and, and what transpires. Thank you very much for having me, Alexa. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.